Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And today we are speaking to John J. Collins, the Holmes Professor of Old Testament Criticism and Interpretation at Yale University, and a man who knows a thing or two about apocalyptic. Uh, John, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. So the question in everyone's mind at this stage might be apocalyptic. What do, what do you mean? You mean the end of the world? Are we talking about zombies? What are we talking about here? The word apocalypse just means revelation. Okay. Now, the extension of that to a whole genre was done really by analogy with the book of Revelation. This is not to say that the book of Revelation should be the criterion for, for judging it, but historically that is how this genre was assembled. Now, when I say it was assembled, I'm referring to the genre as something that was constructed in modern scholarship. In, in the ancient world, some genres are well-defined, some are not. So, you know, everyone knew what a tragedy was, everybody knew what a comedy was, but in the Jewish world, early Christian world, uh, there wasn't any literary criticism, properly speaking. And so we now have to kind of put the pieces together by finding books that resemble each other. Now, the kind of revelation that you get in the book of Revelation, Mutatis Mutandis, uh, first appears in Judaism about 200 BC, roughly. You know, give or take, we're not sure when the earliest books of Enoch were written. But then you have several books attributed to Enoch. You have the book of Daniel. And then towards the end of the first century AD, you have another cluster of major apocalypses, including the book of Revelation and what we call fourth Ezra and second Baruch and as the late Morton Smith put it one time, after that, thick and fast, they came at last, and more and more and more. But it's really only from about 100 on that you find books labeled apocalypses. So by then, people had caught on to the similarity and were using it as a genre label. Whereas in the book of Daniel, it's very hard to know what people saw as the genre of Daniel. Some people would have seen it as prophecy, but it also contained stories. There's In the Hebrew Bible, it's not included in the prophets. In the Greek Bible, it is. This comes from a time, you see, when you had uh, some generic experimentation. But now, to come back, why would I call it an apocalypse? Well, there are a couple of things that are definitive for apocalypses. First of all, they're revelations. If you don't have a revelation, there's absolutely no reason to use the word. Secondly, it's not just any revelation. It has to be a revelation that is out of this world. It has right. to be kind of revelation. It's not like prophecy. You see, if you're a prophet, you get inspired and you say, this is the word of the Lord. If you're an apocalyptic visionary, well, first of all, you need to see something or get into a conversation with an angel or a god or something like that. But you need to be in communication with 
a higher being, the kind of being we typically call angels. Now, angels, you know, in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, God was never alone. There was always a heavenly host. But it's only in the early apocalypses that these members of the heavenly host begin to get names. And in the Bible, the only book that gives names to angels, if we may call them that, is the book of Daniel, which mentions Michael and Gabriel. And then Enoch mentions several others. So usually it's a revelation that's mediated by an angel or other heavenly being. Now, what kind of stuff can you expect to learn from such a revelation? Well, there are two kinds. On the one hand, if you think of the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, you get something that looks a lot like biblical prophecy, but that typically has to do with the end of days, the end of history, a big crisis that's coming. Where it will differ from older prophecy, one of the ways at least in which it will differ is that it promises that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a final judgment. You didn't have that in the older prophets. What are the big changes in Western religion? One of the most fateful changes, I would say, in Western religion, right there. The idea of an afterlife. Of a meaningful afterlife. Before that, in the Hebrew Bible, there was an afterlife, but it was nothing to look forward to. Right, it's sort of ghostly like a Hades that we're familiar with. Like Hades, Mm. like Sheol in Hebrew. You'd be better off dead, so to speak. Right. In Sheol, you couldn't even praise the Lord. It was that bad. Uh, It's like in in Homer, you know, when Achilles is drawn, brought up from the netherworld, they have to give him a drink of blood. He needs that. He didn't know. There There were maybe better tonics nowadays, but blood would do at that point. Uh, So, but but now you see uh, that what's crucial in the apocalypse is, is that you have a judgment, and then some people have a beatific afterlife, and some people have a really miserable one. So that's the that's one category. These I would call historical apocalypses. Typically, they give you an overview of the whole of history, and often they divide it up into periods. But the crucial thing is the big judgment at the end with a a judgment of the dead included. Now, on the other side, there are apocalypses that are more um, spatial. Enoch. Enoch is taken up on the clouds. And after he has an audience with God, an angel says, come on, I'll show you around. And he takes them off to the ends of the earth. Now, often it's hard to say whether what he sees is in heaven or in earth or where it is, but it's all places that you wouldn't normally see. It can include things like the storehouses of the winds, the snow, where the snow is stockpiled during the summer, and also the abodes of the dead where souls are kept waiting for the judgment. Now, later on in the Christian period, uh, these spatial apocalypses are more structured and you go up through a series of heavens. 
And eventually it got to be that seven heavens was more or less canonical. That only happens in the Christian period. Now, can I ask you a question? Do you think that's because of the influence of normalized Hellenistic astronomy on people's worldview? So they basically had read Ptolemy or Aristotle or whatever, and they thought, yeah, well, there's seven planetary spheres and that's just how it is. I think that surely had, uh, had a bearing on it. I wouldn't think too many of these people had read either Ptolemy or Aristotle, but they probably got it secondhand. Exactly. I've never read any work on astrophysics, but I still get some basic ideas about the kind of universe we're supposed to live in nowadays. And that, that's what happened there, too. Okay. Eschatological information, the news about the end times... And that's going to be the type of apocalypse that will have eventually, you know, when we, when we talk about an apocalyptic film nowadays, for example, it might have something to do with a nuclear war, nothing to do with revelation of divine secrets, but you can see the connection there. Yes. And then yeah. you also have these spatial apocalypses, which you call spatial, which are explorations of the heavens, often also once you get up to the heavens, looking down on the earth and seeing the secrets of the earth and kind of exploring the other world in the company of a guide, of an angel, an angelic guide. Yes. So here we have a number of texts. I wonder if you can talk about the cultural background of these texts. Now, the earliest ones I understand are people are pretty much happy to locate them within Second Temple Judaism. Yes. Now, there is an issue there. And the issue is, were there earlier apocalypses in other traditions? Now, if you think in terms of the otherworldly journey, yes, there were, as early as Homer, right. you descends to the netherworld. So you have a tradition of that in Greek, picked up in Latin, and, you know, Virgil has it. And so that, now that is not indebted to the Jewish tradition, whether the Jewish tradition is indebted to it is a fair question because they may have come up with the idea otherwise. You see, you don't get round-trip journeys to heaven in the Hebrew Bible. Elijah is taken up, but you're still waiting for him to come back. Right. Enoch, probably, taken up. And again, now, in the Apocalypses, they say he came back and instructed everybody, but you don't get that in the Bible. So the round trip really only comes into Judaism in the Hellenistic period. The, the wild card in talking about the origins of apocalypticism is the Persian material. And it's a problem for this reason. There are definitely Persian apocalypses, but we have them in Halavi. They date maybe around 800 AD, 900 AD. Now, should we suppose that uh, they are preserving traditions that are older than Second Temple Judaism? Or should we suppose even that perhaps at some point they were influenced by Second Temple Judaism or Christianity? And I think Jewish influence is a very real possibility, actually, uh, because Daniel was known in Persia, hmm. the book of Daniel. But nonetheless, I am inclined to think that there was some Persian influence. 
You know, the earliest evidence we have about the Persian stuff uh, is in Greek authors. And they talk about you know, history being divided into periods, a battle between Ahura Mazda and Ariman, light and darkness. This kind of stuff shows up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, which come in between Daniel and Revelation and are apocalyptic in the broader, looser sense of the word. No, it's not the literary genre of apocalypse, but it's the same kind of thing. So I think probably uh, there was some Persian influence there. But having said that, I give up because we don't have the Persian texts in their old form. And it's, you know, it is, you know, before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we didn't have the books of the Hebrew Bible, except in medieval manuscripts. Right. In Hebrew. So it's by no means impossible that medieval manuscripts have texts that were actually written a thousand years earlier. But you can't do that. You have to be careful. Yeah. You have to be careful. So, however, it comes about, we have these Jewish texts which start to pop up. And they have, yes. from what you said, they have something new. So, one thing they have that's new is an idea of an afterlife, which is new to the Jews, seemingly. If I could just ask you to speculate irresponsibly, do you think, maybe you don't think we can say, but if you think we can say something about this, why does this idea start to pop up in Judaism, in Second Temple Judaism? Uh, now, I think there are probably two strands that lead to that. In the Enoch tradition, the oldest stuff we have is astronomical. And it seems that you had probably, I think, in Babylon, some Jewish exiles who dabbled in uh, Babylonian astronomy, dabbled in Babylonian lore about the heavens, uh, en Medoranki was supposed to have gone up to heaven and become the founder of the Guild of Diviners. That opened up, I think, the possibility, an interest in the heavens and a belief that it was possible for human beings to get there and come back. That is conducive, I think, to a belief in an afterlife. The one that's more commonly cited is that in the second century BC, you get persecution in Jerusalem. Mm. This is a very rare thing in antiquity. It is almost certain that Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king, didn't think he was persecuting anybody. He thought he was putting down a rebellion. But you did have a situation where people could be put to death for keeping the Jewish law. This was not supposed to happen. This created cognitive dissonance. You know, so it was supposed to be that if you kept the law, you lived long and you prospered. Right. Now we have a situation where if you keep the law, you get killed. And the afterlife, the judgment after death, provided a solution to that. I don't think that that can have been what started it, because the, some of the Enoch apocalypses are older than the Maccabean crisis. So I think the oldest root of it has more to do with speculating on a world beyond this. 
and the possibility of getting there. That comes from syncretism, really, from exposure. You know, in the Hellenistic age, you had people going all the way, you know, from Athens to Babylon. So you had much more exposure to different ideas. So we start to see a, a cosmopolitan Jewish community. Well, you know, cosmopolitan, uh, the Jewish community on the whole was spread all over the cosmos. If by cosmopolitan, you mean people who think of themselves as multicultural. Yeah, that doesn't follow. No, well, I, I'm not sure about I'm not sure about a, a, a case of identity. Like, for example, someone like Philo of Alexandria, first century. Yeah. Um, he, you know, for a long time, there was this rather inane debate. Is he a Jew? Is he a Hellene? You know, it's very simple for him. He's a Jew, uh, identity-wise. That's one thing. Um, now, yeah. is he a Jew who's deeply indebted to Hellen Hellenic culture? Yes, of course. So what? He that For him, yeah. that was no country. But we would describe him as perhaps being cosmopolitan. He's living in this huge multicultural city of Alexandria, sure. speaking 50 languages. He's a Jew, but he's reading Plato, and he's reading the Stoics, and he probably knows some Buddhists and all kinds of stuff. So he's very cosmopolitan. That's kind yes. of what I mean. Yes, but I don't think the people who wrote the books of Enoch were like Philo. Right. Now, I don't know. By the time they wrote the books of Enoch, they may have been back in Judea or in Galilee somewhere. I'm not sure where. But my guess is that they kept to themselves largely. If they developed a rather idiosyncratic form of Judaism. We sort of get this um, impression from the, the Qumran texts as well, right? Like yes. a, a, a very inward-looking community with some stringent, high-temperature beliefs about their right. role in the universe. But nonetheless, such people can also be influenced by other cultures where they don't even really know where the ideas came from. In the case of the Qumran community, it's the, the two spirits of light and darkness, which I think is flagrantly Zoroastrian. Now, if you ask somebody at Qumran, is that a Zoroastrian idea? He would say, a what? He probably never heard of Zoroastrians. But somebody along the line had picked up this idea that the world is divided between forces of light and forces of darkness, and it sounded good. So our early texts are Jewish. We have Book of Enoch, or one Enoch. Yes. Now, there's a whole Enoch tradition, which we'll, we'll get into in another episode, because it's yeah. very complicated. Um, we have the Book of Daniel. And then, <laughs> if we fast forward a bit in time, sometime late in the first century CE, I think, we have a Greek apocalypse, the Apocalypse of John, which is part of the New Testament, a Christian yes. text, that is probably the one that's maybe most familiar to our listeners, um, on a kind of statistical average. Now we're in Christian territory. And we're not even, I think, in, in the kind of Christianity that they sort of want to talk about as Jewish Christianity, but more, well, maybe this is open to interpretation, but this is a new movement of some kind, let's say. Yes. Many, many people would say that John of Patmos was a Jew, thought of himself as a Jew, but he also thought that the Messiah had come and that real Jews are to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Okay. So as far as his self-identity goes, he probably was Jewish, but obviously wouldn't be accepted as such by everybody. 
Mm. Although when we're dealing with texts like this, like the the Qumran community, for example, I, I feel kind of morally certain that, the, for example, the cosmopolitan Jews of Alexandria might have thought they were a bit queer and that the, the, sure. the, the temple-based mainstream cult in Jerusalem would have thought that they were a bit queer. And you know what I mean? Like there's... Sure, sure. Yeah. So we have the Apocalypse of John. This is a, I guess, retrospectively a Christian text, but at the time... Um, an interesting variant on the Jewish apocalypse, yes. I guess. We also have these interesting texts, which are generally known as the Gnostic apocalypses. I wonder if you can talk about those. What are they? What forms do they take? Well, they come, these are a few hundred years later than the stuff I usually work with. They are apocalypses. They, are, they copy the same style of revelation. Uh, like the Jewish apocalypses, but not the apocalypse of John, they are typically pseudepigraphic. That is to say, they attributed them to somebody who was long dead, the famous apocalypse of Adam. And they have some of the features of the Jewish apocalypses. What they do not so typically have is a kind of public end of history. It's more an internal transformation. So I think... That is a transmutation influenced by your friend Plotinus, perhaps. Hmm. So these Gnostic apocalypses, which we, we will definitely devote some attention to probably later in our chronology, because this is, as you say, late antique material That's for right. the most part, yeah. have a, just to tantalize our listeners, they have a slightly different approach in that they're not talking about so much end-of-the-world-y type stuff as some kind of inner transformation and yeah. um, visionary ascent. In internalized way. You know, they're not so interested in the world out there. They're interested in things that are going on within the soul and the mind. Right. But the, the Jewish apocalypses and the early Christian apocalypses are quite interested in the physical world. Now, the interest isn't always salutary. How so? It's just doing some of this in class and another context today. We're looking at the plagues in the book of Revelation. And if you read the book of Revelation, chapter 16, now you could, if you were so minded, take it as a prophecy of the age we live in, where the sea gets polluted and the earth gets polluted. <laughs> and Now, there are different kinds of pollution from the ones we're dealing with. Uh, but in the end, the whole world gets just destroyed. So, you know, I think in the apocalypses, uh, in many of them, there is a temporary restoration. Now, in the apocalypse of John or the book of Revelation, there's a restoration that lasts for a whole thousand years. That's not bad. This is the millennium. But in the end of the day, that will be taken away and the sea will be no more and the sky will be rolled up, and the world as we know it will cease to exist. There will, however, be a new Jerusalem, will there not? A new Jerusalem. And one of the, the dilemmas is, what do you make of the continuity? Is the new Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem, you know, gussied up? Or is it really a new creation? And I think in Revelation it is a new creation that there isn't much that carries over. You know, the elect 
in a way, will carry over and come back. But I don't think what you get after the millennium is not meant to be anything like the world we live in. You know, that, from that reason, it's often said that apocalypses have a pessimistic view of this world. You could also look at it and say they have a very optimistic view. They think we can get out of it. You can escape, right? You can escape, but, but it's escape rather than renovation. You know, it's that reformation of this world. It's not designed to improve this world. It's to replace it. Right. This is interesting to me because um, I think of this kind of let's get out of here attitude toward the world as very typical of late antiquity. Not so, yep. much, not so much typical of the what from a classical perspective you'd call the Hellenistic period. Um, but do we find it in the earlier Jewish apocalypses, this kind of... The, early, the earlier apocalypses are ambiguous. Now, I think you do find it in parts of the Enoch literature. But now, again, this all had Hellenistic uh, antecedents. But in the, at the end of the book of Enoch, it says, you know, the righteous will be companions to the stars. And this is also what it says in Daniel, that the, the, the really good ones, the wise teachers, will shine like the stars, like the firmament of heaven. Now, that's pretty well getting out of this world. The difference is that in Daniel, at least, there's still a kingdom that goes on on earth. So I don't think Daniel is expecting an end to this world yet. One of the Enoch apocalypses, the apocalypse of weeks, does say that this world will be destroyed the present, and that a new world created in place of it. So, you know, you're getting the beginnings of that in the late Hellenistic period. It just becomes much more common, much more standard in late antiquity. Right. I wonder if um, <laughs> another impossible to answer question, but very fascinating is vis-a-vis this rise of a kind of we have to get out of here, this is not our home approach to the world, which we see in many movements in late antiquity, is one ingredient of that, the rise of that, a kind of spread of the very old Jewish exile motif. I don't think so. No, nope. I don't think I don't think so at all. Now, you know, some others may disagree on that, but you see, the the old exile motif, exile is getting out of here against your will. That's true. You know, there's no analogy between going to Babylon going to heaven <laughs> but, but the exile motif kind of gets revamped when that when the temple gets destroyed again right and now it's like okay, yes. the exile has become a, a permanent situation and we have to yeah. kind of come to terms with that and it's not good that's true but that still i think is more relevant to exile in this world well which you still get a lot of i think you've given us a, a quite a wonderful introduction to this literature. We're talking about something that may have roots going way, way back in the Near East, but comes about in the Hellenistic period. Start, We start to see texts, and there's a big flowering of it. And then in the early Jewish Christian movement, the Jesus movement, whatever you want to call it, there's another flurry of it. And we see a lot of interesting apocalypses. And then later on, we'll see the Gnostic apocalypses and so on in late antiquity. I would love to talk a little bit about the angels, the mediators. So there's these mediators, and in some of your written work, you've, you've emphasized these as, as really a, quite a key 
defining aspect of the apocalyptic genre. Tell me about these mediating angels. They're, they're very interesting. They're very interesting from a perspective of Western esotericism, because some scholars, notably Antoine Febvre, who is the sort of founder of the academic study of Western esotericism, defined an idea of mediation, divine mediation, as a, a key central element. So characters like angels who come and give you a direct revelation are very essential to a lot of Western esoteric ways of thinking. And here we seem to have an early example of yeah, that figure. This is where the later esotericists got the idea. From apocalyptic. Well, ultimately, you know, then, then they spread a little bit. Now, already in the Hebrew Bible, you occasionally have be beings, Malachim. Malak is really a messenger. There's the angel of the Lord, and sometimes you don't know, is that the Lord himself, or is that uh, another being representing him some way? But their profile is greatly heightened in the apocalyptic literature. Now, and I think, you see, it's, uh, it's a switch. Again, you may have some angels in prophecy, not named, but especially in later prophecy, like the book of Zechariah and Ezekiel, you have angels speaking to the visionary. But much more consistently now in the Hellenistic period. And why is this? I think, you know, there, there is a sense that there is a greater gap. God is more distant. Now, there's probably a political analogy at work here. God is like, what, a Seleucid king, the Persian king, and you've got a huge court. And so if you want to communicate with the royal court, you don't just walk in. You know, you make contact with emissaries who go back and forth. There is a, a nice little book on that by Philip Essler. So it may be that changing political landscape and the rise of the sort of transnational empire had something to do with the rise of the figure of the of God as king of the royal court. Yes. yes. With all his messengers and emissaries. And I think it also had something to do with the ability to conceive of history as a unit. You know, to have a vision that embraces all of history, which is something you also get in the apocalyptic literature. Now, you will get glimmers of it earlier, but nothing like the same degree. Right. So I think the, the new political scene has a lot to do with it. So another point at which specifically the Hellenistic Jewish experience is maybe very relevant to absolutely this way of thinking. Well, John Collins, on the subject of a universal view, we are at a good high point in our discourse, maybe to wrap yes. things up. Thank you very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. And um, till next time, stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>